there is an element of self-indulgence in this in this episode. I could have invited a lot of people, Kevin, but I, I'm talking to you because <laughs> this is just – I'm just dying to talk about some of this stuff because I'm a travel writer, right? You know, I'm not a cultural critic. I, I'm not – don't have that many direct connections to the film industry yet somehow mm-hmm. – the fact that Walt Whitman shows up a lot in vagabonding, shows up a ton in vagabonding, mm-hmm. you, you trace that history in a way back to Dead Poets Society. There's other factors, but oh, it's, I believe it. it, it's yeah. interesting how movies inform the way we see things. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with Kevin Smokler, author of the book Brat Pack America, a love letter to 1980s teen movies. Now I've been a fan of coming-of-age films for as long as I can remember, yet it's hard to pinpoint exactly why they've captured my imagination. And part of my reason for inviting Kevin onto the show was to think out loud about this and ponder what it is that makes these movies so fun to watch and rewatch. Now, I've come to love a wide range of coming-of-age movies, so to narrow them down for this episode, I broke them into seven main categories, including 1. Kids having adult adventure movies, think Stand By Me. 2. Emblematic teen movies like The Breakfast Club or Say Anything. 3. Quirky teen fantasy movies, I'm thinking here of films like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is one of my all-time favorites. 4. One Crazy Night movies that play out in real time, like Dazed and Confused. 5. Dark teen movies like River's Edge. Six teen sports movies with a strong sense of place, a good example being Breaking Away, but on principle we had to talk about the TV version of Friday Night Lights. And seven autobiographical coming-of-age movies, a prime example being Almost Famous, but also the TV show Freaks and Geeks, which I absolutely love. We also touch on coming-of-age classics like Boys in the Hood, Heathers, Back to the Future, Dead Poets Society, Risky Business, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, as well as Season 4 of The Wire, American Graffiti, Over the Edge, Remember the Titans, and My So-Called Life. We also talk about more recent coming-of-age movies and TV shows like Boyhood, Girls, Dope, Lady Bird, Dear Simon, and of course the Netflix show Stranger Things. Seriously, we really go deep on this topic, or at least we go broad. And Kevin was a great conversational companion on this, since he's put a ton of thought into what these movies convey and how they evoke their own time, even as they evoke timeless themes. Let's listen in. So I I know you've been biting your tongue as I've been talking about all these categories (laughs) because there's so much to talk about. But let's go back up to the top. Um, Kids having adult adventures. And and, uh, just I'll let you talk in a second. But my end of this movie was Stand By Me, which came out in the summer of 1986. In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence, a time after which we are never the same. It happened in the summer of 1959. A long time ago. Oh, man. Where do you hear this? Where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? And I had just finished junior high at that point, and this is a movie about boys going into junior high. Yeah. And it was a really it was a really intense year for me. Uh, I had become air quotes popular, I guess, uh, through my own grit, and I spent the summer... Uh, writing sort of a memoir about the experience. I'm not sure if it, many fim, uh, 15-year-olds write uh, retrospectives on their ninth grade year. Oh, geez, I, I'm impressed. But, <laughs> but I, did, I think it, I probably made a Maxell mixtape of my ninth grade year, but that's about it. Yeah, it was a weird emotional year. To read it as an adult, I cringe because just the cruelties of teenagehood. I, I think sometimes when I think about, when I look back on my youth or if I look at my friends speculating about youth 
on Facebook, I think, man, you don't you forget what it was like. We were pretty mean people. Um, we were we were nice in our own ways, but there's just a hard edgeness to that journal. But I think what struck me about Stand by Me, and we can get into some of um, the details of the movie and, and and other movies that are similar to it, is that it acknowledged that this time of life can be important and serious and and life changing in a way. Uh, and so my ninth grade had nothing to do with what these boys was doing, but there was something about these these four boys wandering off to see a dead body and sort of having these conversations about where they're headed in life. And there's that real tension between Gordy and Chris Chambers and what's going to happen to Chris. Did you respond to Stand By Me when you first saw it? What's your relationship to that movie? Oh, very much so. I, I think I probably saw Stand By Me. I, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and, and Stand By Me was – back then movies could would play for – weeks upon months if they could still sell tickets and i used to go see stand by me like i used to deliberately go and see stand by me over and over again on saturday and sunday afternoons or or weekday afternoons in the summertime uh, when it was still summer because i knew there wouldn't be that many people in the theater and i just wanted to have the movie all to myself um i i I, I wouldn't say like I – so in 1986 when that came out, I was slightly older than the kids in that movie. Those kids are in sixth grade, beginning seventh grade, and I was a couple of years older than that. Um, I, the thing that the thing that, that sticks with me watching it now – and this is a slightly different thing than why it's in Brat Pack America. But the thing that sticks with me is how – is how painfully sad that movie is, and and yet it just compels you to come back to it again and again. Um, I'm not a, I wasn't a morose kid, and I'm not, I've never been a morose adult. Um, but I find, I find something so poignant and true and honest and real about, um, about the sadness in that movie, and and how the movie is, is from from nose to tail completely surrounded by death and dying. And yet it doesn't manage to be – and yet it doesn't manage to wallow in it. It doesn't manage to be um, – it manages to be shockingly funny at times. It manages to remind you of a lot of great things about being young. Um, and at the end, we're sort of – the end, even though the end is, is you know, uh, you certainly can smile at the end. The end the end to me always struck me as a little bit ambiguous, you know, Um you're you're happy for Gordy that he seems to have grown up to be a successful adult, and you're really sad that like he was not able to bring any of his friends with him. Um, I, I think everybody just does such a magnificent job in that movie. I I, I think um, it, it, it I, I think for for a movie where where ninety percent of the cast was like under the age of twenty five, um, it's just I think they just do a miraculous job. If you think back and remember that Rob Reiner made the sure thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally in a row. And Spinal Tap. And Spinal Tap right before, you're right, right before Sure Thing. I mean, like, I would, I would, I would, I would say thank you very much, take a bow and walk off into the sunset after doing that. Like, like, how could, has anybody ever had a streak that good? Like, um, well, there's John Hughes, who we'll come to, um, yeah. who, when you look at how fast he wrote, I mean, it's almost like the, the mid, mid late sixties Beatles, where it's like, really, you know, all those albums were released in that small of a period of time. And then you have, uh, John Hughes really packing it in and you're right. Like I think of John Hughes more as, as someone who, who really brought out a density of material, but Rob Reiner was certainly making terrific movies one after another during this era. Um, did you read the Stephen King novella? Have you read the, the body? 
Yes, yes. I read the body in response to seeing Stand By Me. In fact, I remember like like walking out of like my 11th screening of Stand By Me, you know, fingers still sticky from popcorn and um, and walking to the newsstand down 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 Liberty Avenue um, and picking up a, a paperback like a, a paperback copy of different seasons. I'm curious to know what stood out for you about that, because what stood out for me was, of course, Ace come back and beat the crap out of everybody. Right. Stephen King accounts yeah. for the fact that after this big confrontation by the tracks, um, of course, the little boys get picked on for the rest of the summer. And, and I think there's broken arms and stuff. Um, yeah. And of course, you would you would never you would ruin the movie if if you if you brought that back in. But you can account for that in the in the, in the novella. So what stood out to you about the novella? It's been God, it's been so long since I've read it, but I, I think it's I, I, I feels to me it feels to me like one of the most Stephen King of the Stephen King pieces, like mm-hmm. uh, just just in, in terms of the things he's interested in are so concentrated in that story. Um, youth, the sort of um, imprisonment of small towns, um, the mundanity of 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 horror and um, and also like like how we how we how we sort of lack appreciation for the things we have um the uh i i i was unaware i mean i i obviously i hadn't read the novels but hadn't read the novella since seeing the movie but i was unaware that that the last line that that gordy types is the last line of the novella and i always thought that was i always thought that was that, that was there was an almost sheepish note to end the novella on um which I think is, you know, is I think is just as sad as the movie. Um, I, I've always, I, I, I'm largely, I largely walk away from that movie saying to myself, "Thank God, Gordy turned out okay, and his kids seem to have turned out okay." And and I'm just, I, I think back to the fact that you know, his brother died so young, and that and that Chris Chambers is gone, and I, there's a real, there's a real. There's a real sense of tragedy to that story, but it, it makes me it's it, it's so good. I just keep coming back to I, I would I would see stand by me, you know, standing on my head like. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that movie. And, and uh, actually, while you, when you were saying that, it occurred to me that um, I don't know if you've seen The Wire, but season four of The Wire is about kids. And, you know, if you've seen The Wire before that the narrative rules of The Wire mean all those kids are not going to make it. Uh, yeah, and so that was a very moving season for me. Unlike the other five seasons of The Wire, which were all excellent, but just that knowledge um, that, that maybe has been sharpened by watching movies like Stand by Me that that reflects life. You know that these characters that you come to really have affection for through the narrative aren't guaranteed happy endings. You know beyond life. So that was an interesting. Um, oh yeah, I mean that's a that's a magical season of television, season four of The Wire, and I and I I love that it keeps you guessing about the the ultimate fates of those four kids, and even even to the, to the last ten or fifteen minutes of the season, you still don't know, um, and then when it happens, you know, to the brilliance of David Simon and his team, um, it's both inevitable and surprising at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and mm. and um, actually. When I first did this outline, I brought in Boys in the Hood under this category, and you sort of disagreed with me, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. But one reason I put it in is that, one, there's sort of an homage to Stand By Me at the beginning of Boys in the Hood because the young boys go to see a dead body. Yeah. Um, but then there's also, this, there's also that poignance and um, 
just just sort of narrative sadness in the fact that not all of the the boys in the hood make it you know that that even in fact there's even a parallel scene that when doughboy walks away he he fades out um sort mm-hmm. of like sort of like uh the boys do at the end of stand by me and the stakes are different and i think you you made a good point in our email that these are this is this is a different situation you know that that the, the main narrative of boys in the hood is an older version of those boys in a much more directly, uh, you know, violent and uncertain environment than than we see in Stand by Me, which is really set in the wilderness. Um, and and so, what do you see as a parallel? What are the parallels and 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 differences in a movie like Boys in the Hood? And what what other movies might you see in the vein of Stand by Me? Yeah, I mean, I should say Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood came out slightly too late to be in Brat Pack America. Um, it was released in the summer of 1990, and I. I Though it's completely arbitrary, as you know, when putting a book together, you have to sort of declare the limits of what you're talking about at some point, or you'll just be writing that book forever. Absolutely, um, yeah. And I, I sort of declared the end, the the end date of an '80s teen movie to be the release of Heather's, which was in March of 1989. Um, so, Boys in the Hood came a little bit after, a little bit after that. Um, Otherwise, I would have been perfectly happy to count it in this book. Um, Boys in the Hood is another movie I've probably I, I probably saw nine or ten times in the theater and and have seen at least two dozen times afterwards. Um, I think I, when we when we were talking about it before the show, uh, the thing the the thing that I Boy, Boys in the Hood, I think you're right, has a lot of uh, homage to Stand by Me and sort of follows the same. Uh, steps of of, a, of an almost classical Greek tragedy. You know, you meet the characters, you you come to believe in some of them, and then through um, a real unexpected twist of fate, we know that some of them. We we find out that some of them are not going to make it. Um, Boys in the Hood is a lot more about parents and children than Stand by Me is. The parents are largely absent from Stand by Me on purpose. Um, and Boys in the Hood is is nothing if not a tribute to to strong and skillful parenting. Um, I, I think the the most important scene in, in in a movie full of important scenes like Boys in the Hood is the scene between uh, is the scene the the lunch meeting between um, uh, father played by Lawrence Fishburne and mother played by Angela Bassett, um, where they they have a conversation even though they're divorced about how their son is being raised and the father is convinced that the son who is the main character of the movie is a grown man and can take care of it himself and Angela Bassett as the mother said still believes that there's a lot of work to be done as his parents, um, and and to think that that John Singleton was probably in his early to mid twenties when he wrote, when he wrote this, I mean, it was yeah. a remark, a remarkable like bit of conversation between two grown adults. Uh, and he was a long way from being a parent himself when he wrote that scene. Um, I, I think that's, I, I think in that way, boys in the hood shares some DNA with breaking away, which, which is another movie about, which is another sort of classical coming of age story that enters the story later. Most of the coming of has already happened in breaking away. Uh, and we enter the story, you know, after these guys have graduated from high school and are sort of wondering what comes next. Breaking Away is a movie about the in-between, the in-between of childhood and adulthood, but also a movie, a movie very much about parents and children and um, and how how the lives parents have lived um, influence what they bring to their kids and what kids choose to take and choose to leave behind. Um, yeah, I got 
a breaking away stand by me boys in the hood afternoon like like i i can't imagine being happier than that actually i want to i i have sort of expanded the category here to go beyond your book because there are some of those in between movies beyond breaking away there's movies like kicking and screaming that i'll get to later that mm are about the fact that by the 1990s, coming of age is really something that, that stretched into your 20s. Um, <laughs> That's so true. I never thought of, I've thought about that way, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And so I was yeah. affected. Like, I, I remember, you, of course, I was slightly older than the Stand By Me boys when I watched Stand By Me. I was slightly older than the Kicking and Screaming guys when I watched Kicking and Screaming, but both of them really resonated with me in interesting ways, even though there were, there were differences between who I was and who these characters were. But I think that's that's the joy of this, and we can get into this later, of how the specificity of these stories have a universal resonance, I think, uh, that can surprise you. Uh, and so really the movies that I'm bringing up are, are movies that I have an emotional connection to. And it sounds like you have a, an emotional connection to a lot of the same ones. Um, oh, yeah, you've made a lot of good choices here. I, yeah. I, I feel the same way. Awesome. Well, in this category, I, I, my outline says talk about Stranger Things and other Netflix shows about kids like, uh, like Everything Sucks. But let's, I'm going to move that to the end uh, because I think maybe we can just sort of end this conversation by talking about how these stories are told now. Stranger Things obviously having very strong homages to Stand By Me. So let's move into the next category, which is emblematic teen movies. And really, my my main example, there's other movies I want to touch on, but my main example here is The Breakfast Club, which is not even my favorite John Hughes movie. I liked The Breakfast Club from the get-go. A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. I can't believe this is really happening to me. Before this day is over, they'll break the rules. <laughs> Chicks cannot hold a smoke. That's what it is. Bear their souls. I'm a nymphomaniac. Are your parents aware of this? Take some chances. Being bad feels pretty good. Huh? And touch each other in a way they never dreamed possible. Why'd you do that? Because I knew you wouldn't. But it feels like this is a movie that just sort of reframed how we talk about teen movies and, and sort of how teenagers and, and, and the way they think and what they're worried about appears on the screen. And I know it, it has a lot of ink in your book. So um, what, what was your gut take on Breakfast Club? Uh, and, and did you like it immediately? Or is it something that you came into later through more intellectual lens? I, I did like it immediately. I, I didn't quite understand it, but I loved the dialogue and I loved, um, I, I always loved movies where everybody is trapped in one place because I felt like it was almost like the filmmakers creating a dare for themselves. Uh, can you, can you make an 80 minute movie where you don't have the benefit of a bunch of, of a bunch of like action and cool stuff happening? Um, so I always, I definitely liked the dialogue. I still feel The Breakfast Club is one of the most like listenable movies of all time. Um, I didn't appreciate how central its role was in this category called '80s teen films, uh, and in my book, thereby, uh, until I started telling people I was writing Brat Pack America subtitle, a love letter to '80s teen movies, and seventy percent of the time, the next thing the person asking would say would be you mean like the breakfast club huh, yeah. um and so the breakfast club is kind of is kind of the one that stands in for all of the rest uh it's the it's the uh 
word K Street when you're talking about lobbyists or Wall Street when you're talking about finance. Um, there, there's a word. There's a word for that sort of thing. But um, uh, the Breakfast Club is the one that that, that represents the entire category. Um, it's the metonym. Is that met- metonymy? I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it is the metonym for for 80s teen movies. Hmm. Uh, even if you're not right, I just like the way it sounds. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna use that from now on. Um, the so I, I think The Breakfast Club is really important to the story of 80s teen movies, and it's really important in the filmography of John Hughes because it is the movie he wanted to make first. He ended up making making 16 Candles first because because that was the one that Paramount uh, – that was the one that, that his that, – I don't think it was Paramount. It was a different studio. That was the one that, that, that someone said yes to first. Um, so, But Breakfast Club was the movie he was going to make if he only ever got to make one movie. Um, and the idea came from uh, his, his a friend of his son's high school that had all day detention, and he sort of thought, what would happen if you put five very different kids in all day detention, and what would you say? What could you say about that? Um, and the idea that we are all more alike than we than we are different is a very is a very John Hughes concept, and very close to his heart, both as an artist and as a person. Um, that's something think, that grabbed me actually when I first saw the movie, and and there, it has some weak spots, I think, um, and and we can get to that later. But uh, I remember being fifteen and watching it and thinking, "Oh my God, yes, we do." You know, sort of at a time in life when we're when we begin to think ourselves in in categorizations, then this movie sort of reminded us of the of how identity can overlap in certain ways. I also loved the, the language, you know, like Moliere can pump my nads, like yeah. <laughs> that, that entered the parlance of our times. And that's just totally John Hughes poetry right there. And I, like, I, there were like total, you know, metal heads that would, that, that appropriated this, the language of Bender, which, which is appropriate, but still there, there's something really, really vivid, uh, not just about the fact that these teenagers were talking to each other, but the language that they used to communicate with each other. Oh yeah, I mean, there, there's 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 like 15 lines from that movie that have now become part of standard written English. You know, uh, 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 the phrase "riding the hobby horse" to mean you know engaging in casual sex. The um, uh, the uh, I, I still say I still say to people when I when I I'm making an empty brag. I make thirty one thousand dollars a year. I'm a swell guy. Um, the uh, I, I yeah I, I that. John John Hughes did that so effortlessly. I mean, he was like he was like the Neil Simon of uh, the Neil Simon of kids of, of teen movies. Like he, the the way that he could sort of spin out fantastic dialogue by the yard is just is just breathtaking to listen to and to watch. Um, the um, I, I, I I agree with you. I think that movie has has a lot of its flaw has has a lot has several significant flaws. The biggest one for me is that it all seems to wrap up too neatly yeah. um, for a movie that has really been about uh, about ambiguity and, uh, and coming into an understanding of people not like you of a movie that seems to be very much not about big dramatic moments. It, it, it kind of hurriedly, you know, it, it sort of rushes to a big dramatic moment at the end that I don't think it really earns. Um, but I, yeah, overall, like I, it is not my favorite John Hughes movie either. Um, but I, I, I probably as a person put weight, put way too much weight on rewatchability. Hmm. Um, is, is that a movie I could, you, you could, you could just drop me in front of any day, any time. And I'd want to see it to me personally. Um, outside of my work as a writer or a critic or anything like that, to me, that's the sign of a great movie. And and like most of what John Hughes does, has done, fits in that category. 
the end of The Breakfast Club, the characters really, they pair off suddenly. And then the Brian character, who I sort of identify with because he was sort of the narrator. Like, I'm, I identified with Gordy because he was an aspiring writer as I was at that mm. age. I identify with Brian because he's write, he writes the framing essay and he sort of seems to be this observer. But he doesn't get to pair off with anybody. But <laughs> it makes you almost wish that – why didn't they just cast six people in that movie? And, you know, why, um, why didn't you find one other actor there so that you could pack – so you could have, have three pairs of two? Um, I think that would have worked. Um, yeah. I find yeah find Brian uh, find <laughs> Brian somebody to to hook up with you know um, but w- actually one thing that that um, one sentiment that I that I embraced when I first saw the movie that became more questionable over time is the idea of you see us how you want to see us you know in the, in the simplest definitions and um, when I first saw the movie it's just like yeah yeah and then over time I realized that it was that was an adult John Hughes putting that sentiment into a, a mouth of a kid, um, sort of passing judgment on adults, when in fact, in my experience, kids are much more likely to subcategorize. You know, teachers are just trying to make sense of things. And in a way, Vernon is, is a weird MacGuffin of a character. It's like, he's mean, and he's he's obviously doesn't have the interest, best interest of the kids, but if he was really a self-interested narcissist, he would figure out a way to get Saturday off instead of supervising the dead in the library. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. That that as an adult, Vernon becomes unrealistic just because I know teachers and there's no way they would create a pretext to be at the freaking school on a Saturday. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The union would certainly have something to say about that. Like, you almost think... This hadn't quite occurred to me, and this is one of the things I love about that movie is you talk to someone who's seen it a bunch of times like you have, and you immediately start imagining other ways to see him. It's sort of of the prism that keeps on refracting light differently. Um, You really don't need Vernon in this movie. In in fact, Vernon basically disappears in the last third of it. Um, In fact, you could pretty much have the kids and maybe the janitor drifting in and out every now and then, but you don't really need Vernon other than Paul Gleason is a a fantastic – character actor r.i.p um but yeah like do you need vernon in this movie well i mean as from the screenwriter's perspective you need tension you know you need Mm -hmm. tension so the audience pays attention and so it provides a conflict that he could walk in at any time um he could catch them when they leave the library uh and then his cruelty uh you know especially towards bender you know being isolated Mm -hmm. into this room it's sort of a MacGuffinish type uh, role, but in a sense, would we watch all of this dialogue-heavy movie? Are the conflicts between the teenagers strong enough to eliminate the conflict with the authority figure? And I say that I just throw that out. I'm not. I'm not um, taking side one way or another. But that's. I, I assume that 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 the that the Vernon character is there to sort of create conflict and tension that keeps the narrative going in a very chatty movie. I think you're right, um, and I and I think and I think maybe that was some that some mandate from someone else, or maybe 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 John Hughes just you know saw the saw the saw the read the tea leaves correctly and knew he would have to have something like that in there. I, I also think if anybody could write a movie that was just five five or in our fantasies six teenagers talking in a room uh, and make it interesting for for ninety three minutes, John Hughes could have. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk a little bit more about John Hughes. I, I, I'm saving Ferris Bueller uh, for our next category, so we'll, we'll save him. But there were in other, the glove box of the Ferrari. In the glove box of, of that, that very precious Ferrari in the next mm-hmm. category. Uh, and so Breakfast Club is really my number two movie. The, the other movies that he made I liked, but I didn't really respond to. But let's talk specifically about uh, 16 Candles because it's interesting that you're in, in your book you talk about – uh, you talk with an actor about a character who in many ways has, has aged the poorest, which is Long Duck Dong, right? What's happening, hot stuff? I have two minds about Long Duck Dong because, um, uh, one, he's he's sort of, he's this character, he's a larger-than-life character, and you've compared him before to Spicoli or to John Belushi in, in Animal House. But because he's racially specific, it, it becomes really awkward, and um, recently there has been some pushback against the Apu character in The Simpsons. Have you read about this? Yeah, yeah, and I saw and I saw Hari Kondabolo's movie too. Yeah, and so I, so I, that gives me a frame of reference to talk about this. When I first saw Sixteen Candles, I thought Long Duck Dong was cool. Like he's this guy who he he sort of has these asshole. Fa- this family he's staying with that sort of treats him like a servant sometimes. He's like a rebel. He he hooks up with a girl. You know, he talks back against, against parents. He seemed rebellious to me when I first saw the movie. It wasn't until I got older and realized, I mean, part of the problem with Long Duck Dong in retrospect is not just that he, a gong plays when he walks in and he has this funny accent, but there weren't really Asians represented in other teen yeah. movies, yeah. which which is the same problem with Apu and The Simpsons, is that it isn't just the specificity of his character. It's a structural problem. It's that Asian faces aren't appearing. You know, outside of, what, 21 Jump Street or something, there really weren't any Asian teenage faces appearing. And so that's an interesting thing. I, I think it's easy in the 90s for, uh, you know, non-Asian people to just sort of say, okay, let's dismiss Long Duck Dong. But you actually gave him some... some, some uh, uh, ink in your book and you talk to the actor who played him yeah i i think had i not talked to the actor i had i not gotten to to get on the phone with with get wananabe i i wouldn't have had as much to say about long duck dung i figured the character needed addressing as does the sort of parochialism of all john hughes movies you know they're almost entirely set in the north suburbs of chicago the cast is almost entirely white um and and the the argument that that they the argument that 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 actors of actors of color were not available at the time is simply false. Like I I can I can totally imagine Andrew Clark, the Emilio Estevez character in The Breakfast Club, being played by by jockish Forrest Whitaker, who had done essentially a version of that character in Fast Times at Ridgemont High three years earlier. Um, so I, I I think I think. I think John Hughes often often lacked a certain amount of imagination and vision when it came to when it came to what the proto what the archetypal teenage experience looked like. Um, and I think I think frankly, I think the character of Long Duck Dong is beneath him. It, it, it's like a leftover from his days writing for National Lampoon, uh, where you would where you would just you know you just create something that was highly offensive just to say you could do it and wait for someone to wait for 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 some stiff collar to get offended at you. Um, I I think the thing that that elevates that character though. And that makes it – I'm not saying it's not a, an offensive racial stereotype. It is. Um, somehow, Gede Watanabe's performance is one of the great comic performances of the last 30 years. 
uh, because the character is an absolute force of nature. It, it, it's like a weather system coming through coming through that movie. And despite the, the sort of stupid, childish reliance on Asian stereotypes, uh, the movie is not mean to Long Duck Dong. Long Duck Dong emerges as kind of a as kind of a triumphal yet comic figure in this movie. Um, the movie doesn't punish him for being who he is. I think the quotability is is part of the problem, especially if you're Asian, if you're Asian and growing up in the '80s, right? Because mm-hmm. you can quote Spicoli because people quoted Long Duck Dong all the time, just like they quoted Spicoli all the time, or they quoted Bender all the time, right? Yeah. Um, but what happens is that Spicoli and Bender aren't racialized, outsized characters, right? And Very so, true. So I think a lot of young Asian people, including the Asian people in, in my high school, just got sick of hearing that, right? You know, that that's oh. for people with without a, a nuanced understanding of race. It's just like, shut the fuck up about Long Duck Dong. You know, come on. Yeah, it's a little it's a little embarrassing that that John Hughes did not have the foresight to think that. I mean, yes, granted, it was his first movie as a director and and he but he had, you know, he had written National Lampoon's Vacation and Mr. Mom. And and he knew that his 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 coin of the realm was super quotable movies like like you, you could you could reasonably ask, well, what did he think was going to happen? You have a sort of you sort of have sort of high comic yet offensively stereotyped Asian character. It has it has uber quotable John Hughes dialogue. There are few like them at the movies today. Like, yeah, what did he think was going to happen? Um, it, there, there'd be the, the the poor Asian kid in your class who would who would, who would get called the donger until he was thirty. Like, <laughs> I think Long Duck Dung is an interesting what if. Like, what if he had made him a central character with a similar arc? You know, where he starts as an outsider and ends up as a rebel who gets the girl. You know, you can't really throw him into the Farmer Ted character because so many of the characters in that movie are stereotypes, except Molly Ringwald. But it would yeah, be pretty much all of them except Molly Ringwald. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, which is. Which is probably why, you know, in his mind, he's probably thinking, well, everybody's a stereotype. Right down to like Vernon and then the principal in Ferris Bueller's Day Off are also very, very, you know, one-dimensional authority figures. But I, I think it would be interesting to have Long Duck Dong actually from his point of view, like have that movie as this kid who comes from an Asian country and loves America clearly and has all this discovery, but take out the gongs and the funny accent and the fact that he's a super minor character with a lot of great lines. Um, yeah, there's really a great movie to be made about that. And and Jimmy O. Yang from, from uh, Silicon Valley um, – the TV show, the Jimmy O Yang, the comedian, just just wrote a book called How to American, which is a sort of memoir, sort of memoir, how to funny book about being an immigrant. Um, you make that book into a movie, and and maybe the television show Fresh Off the Boat um, is the um, is the is the modern day equivalent of that story. But yeah, there's a really there's a there's a really funny John Hughes esque movie to be done with Long Duck Dong as the protagonist. Absolutely, or or an equivalent. Now, yeah. uh, there's a few in this category. There's a few other movies that I want to touch on. We don't have time to touch on them all, actually. But I want to talk about three movies that came out uh, in the spring or summer of 1989, which was when I was about to graduate from high school. All of which were very affecting on me for different reasons. And that is Heather's Say Anything and Dead Poet Society. Oh wow! Uh, gosh, and I hardly know where to start um, <laughs> when I talk about a lot these, of riches there. There are like in a way. All these movies were so fresh when they came out that in a way, Heather's was kind of an art movie right down to the fact that the girls wore colors. Like it was very on the nose in its symbolism, you know, that certain Mm -hmm. girls wore certain colors of clothing. Yeah. Uh, And then 
Dead Poet Society was in the tradition of these inspirational teacher movies, but but very unique to itself and and very affecting to me, uh, and in in ways that I can get to in a second. And then then say anything. I think we also say anything has been reduced to John Cusack standing with a boombox over his head. But I think we forget how fresh that was and how unique. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Long Duck Dong as a, as a stereotyped character, which is very true. But Lloyd Dobler was such a unique character that. Um, that that's that year was a great teen movie year. So start where you want, but I want to address those three movies. It, it sure was like like say anything. Say anything is is remarkable. We'll start with say anything, which is remarkable in so many ways. It, it is it is Cameron Crowe's coming out as a director. You know to be followed to be followed shortly after by Singles, which I think is a great movie and, and which re- he really reaches his high point as a director in Almost Famous, which of course comes ten years after. Um, and say then we'll anything, get to in it. it. We'll get to later. Yeah, it, it is it is John Cusack coming into adulthood um, and, and we you know, we get to see, you know, many of his great adult performances, everything from L.A. Confidential to High Fidelity to Gross Point Blank to follow. Um, and uh, it, it is it is kind of uh, it, it, is, it is also like like one of. 10,000 examples of the great work of John Mahoney. You know, we uh, we can we. I know there was a lot of going over those when uh, Mr. Mahoney passed away earlier this year, but uh, to take, you know, to compare Say Anything to to Moonstruck, to the work he did in, in Treatment and then in Frasier, I mean, you're just, you're, you're talking about one of the great character actors of the last 50 years. And he, um, was, he and, was part of a dynamic of that movie that it was just an unpredictable movie, just the way it shifted, the story shifted in unpredictable directions. Sorry to interject, uh, but he's... No, he, but you're absolutely right. A, a teen love story where the father is as important to the love story as the, the lovers, I, I think is really... I I think is really unique and special. Um, and, and then the three of them just play it beautifully. I mean, it really is a movie about with three main characters. Um, and, uh, and say anything to me is sort of the first, the reason it isn't in Brat Pack America is, is cause to me it's like the first nineties teen movie. Um, even though it came out in the summer of 1989, it, uh, well, to be shallow about it for a second, it takes place in Seattle and it, um, and it has, and it, and it's about it's about broken families, or or which is often what '90s teen movies were about. See, your kicking and screamings and your reality bites, and the whole idea of adolescence extending on into your 20s. And it's a movie with an ambiguous ending. You, you th- that was almost never the case with the '80s teen movies, which kind of usually ended on a resolute high note. Um, say anything has an ambiguous ending. Um, say anything, I. I, I, I've probably seen 50 times, but I, I, I do find it a little hard to rewatch because there's there's a tremendous amount of pain and sorrow at the end of that movie. Um, it really grabs the Diane Court character, too. It, she was also a really unique—I mean, Lloyd Dobler has almost become an archetype. Chuck Klosterman yeah. has written a great essay about, you know— uh, real life women fixating on, on on Lloyd Dobler as a person, but Diane Court was interesting too. You know, at a time, and there's a lot of male point of view in in the movies that that resonated with me. I think because I was a young male when these movies yeah. resonated. But Diane Court was just a really remarkable character. You know, and the fact that she is sort of her her, her centralness and her competence and her genius is really something that Lloyd is is grabbing onto is another kind of. A story that wasn't very common, you know, where the guy is is courting the girl, uh, not because she's uh, beautiful or popular, but because she's going places. 
Yeah, the 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 beauty of Diane Court and Ione Sky, the actress who plays her, is rather incidental to this movie. I mean, it would be you probably couldn't cast someone who wasn't beautiful in that role, but but that's not that's not what the love story is about. Um, and 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 it's it, it's it's barely it's barely consequential to how fully the character of Diane Court is conceived, both as written by Cameron Crowe and as performed by Ione Skye. Um, yeah, I, I I I find it hard to believe sometimes that that Heather's and and say anything came out you know within six months of each other. They're such different movies and so and such equally brilliant movies. I mean, I just I, I think I think Heather's is you know in addition to being perhaps you know up there with the most quotable movie of all time. All credit in this case due to Daniel Waters, the screenwriter, um, who uh, who would go on to write you know Demolition Man and The Adventures of Ford Fairlane and Hudson Hawk and a bunch of other movies. Um, the uh yeah talk about a talk about a movie yeah talk about a movie that feels like that feels like a john feels like a a john hughes movie as made by like by, by like a a french art student or something um i i just yeah i i, I just think heathers is genius i i think heathers is is the movie that literally if the 80s teen movie perhaps my favorite genre of all time had to end i'm so glad heathers was the movie that killed it um because heathers yeah heathers is the movie that kind of that kind of fully satirizes the genre and predicts what pop culturally speaking was to come i mean you can see the beginnings of the 90s in the in heathers can't you you can, and I think you know. I have another category for dark movies, and and Heather's is certainly dark. But you hit on something. It is satirical. It's there's it's absolutely satirical in a, in a, yeah, in a, wickedly in, funny. Yeah, in a delightful way, and I think there's a lot of fun what ifs too. And I think something you point out in your the book is there's an alternate ending where after everything happens, Martha Dump Truck comes up. And and shoots Veronica, I think, and says "fuck you, Heather." Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Which is again, it, it's it's such a delightful movie in that even the idea of these other endings. Again, it's like, what would the Breakfast Club be like from the perspective of Vernon? Well, what would Heather's be like from the perspective of Mar- Martha Dump Truck? And and yeah. it's almost yeah. like a sort of Martha Dump, Dump Truck's Riot Girl mo- moment would be, you know, seeing he- seeing Veronica as someone who's actually not really that different than the other Heather's. So. That was a funny yeah. detail from your book. Yeah, there, there is a the, the original the original screenplay. I got to talk to Daniel Waters, the screenwriter of Heather's for this for this book. Uh, a, a really fascinating guy. And the original draft of Heather's would have been like a three hour movie. It was something like it was something like two hundred and eighty pages. And I, God, I, I hope that gets like released into the public at some point because I would love to read that. I would love to know what 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 the the epic Heather's would have been. Um, Instead of the really, you know, great but lean and mean one we got. Uh, what was the third movie you mentioned in there? Well, Dead Poets Society. Um, oh yeah, which is which is a different monster really than than these other two because the other two are sort of set in present day and in sort of identifiable middle class or maybe in, in say anything lower middle class settings. But Dead Poets Society is set in sort of this fictional Vermont boarding school. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of of the tradition of you know, other inspirational teacher movies, but this was really the only inspirational teacher movie that I really responded to emotionally at this certain time of my life. Um, and I'll get to, you know, the specific ways that it affected me later, but I'm curious to know your take on it. Um, I, you know, I, I love Dead Poet Society. I, I always have. I, I think it's, I think it's got, 
I always feel a little a little sheepish saying this because the screenplay won an Academy Award for best screenplay. I, I feel like I feel like the screenplay is not perfect. I feel like it gives some characters short shrift and it creates it, it creates sort of needless villains where they needn't where where you don't need villains. Um, so what are I, some examples of the short shrifts in the in the villainy that? Oh, you, you really, you really don't, I, you really don't need Dylan Cushman, the great, who is a who is a great character actor and went on to do all sorts of good stuff. Who who plays Cameron in this movie? You really don't need the one kid who isn't conventionally beautiful like the other kids, and the one kid with red hair to sort of to sort of all of the sudden say let poor Mr. Keating fry. Hmm. Like you, you, you just don't need that. You, you've already got, you've already got an evil headmaster played by the great Norman Lloyd, who, by the way, is 105 years old and still acting. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, you, you, you don't need, you don't need sort of, you, you don't need to, you don't need that. But to me, what's what's really interesting about Dead Poets is the fact that it was set in 1959 and is clearly like what, 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 Keating, what John Keating is advocating is kind of a metaphor for the 1960s. Um, and, uh, and this is again another movie that is set in the pre 1960s that hints at what is to come, but was made in the 1980s. Well, an interesting uh, thing here to, to interject again is that it's it's a 1960s idea, but it came to me at a time when we were sort of tired about hearing about the 1960s, like in, in its on the nose sense. Yeah, um, very true. Uh, there's one thing. Some of these movies have sort of these caricatured hippie teachers, p- perhaps most uh, notably *River's Edge*, which we'll come to in a second. But yeah. the idea of *Carpe Diem* or of just sitting around and talking with ideas with your friends—I think if a hippie teacher would have told me that, you know, under the baby boomer um, umbrella, I just would have rolled my eyes because I was tired of that. Um, mm-hmm. But somehow it Trojan horse this idea in. And when I was in college, I would sit with my friends. We would almost recreate some of these Dead Poet Society scenes. So we could sit and talk about ideas. You know, I think it, it sort of it communicated this idea that you don't have to just, you know, chug beers or do your homework, that you can sit around with no particular goal and talk about literature and poetry and what you want in life. And, and that was one way that it, that it affected me personally. I think the quotable parts of the movies are not from the screenplay either. When you say, oh, Captain, my Captain, you're quoting Walt Whitman. You know, you're not yeah. quoting uh, the Oscar-winning screenwriter. And we were talking about Carpe Diem. You're talking about these ideas that, that predate the movie. Uh, and I think that's sort of maybe a cleverness of the screenplay is that it, it allows Keating to be a vessel for ideas that are not unique to the movie. But let's move on to the next category, uh, sort of maybe away from from uh, the more realistic tropes. Not that these not that these movies are all hyper-realistic, but when you think of Ferris Bueller, who is, who is sort of, this is the main movie under the umbrella of the quirky teen fantasy movie. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Um, it's a movie I fell in love with immediately and remains one of my favorite movies, but one criticism of it in retrospect is like, oh, well, he was just a rich kid, you know, driving around and having all of these options. But uh, in a way, it was so obviously, even to me as a teenager, a fantasy movie that I didn't really care. My class consciousness button wasn't tweaked with Ferris Bueller because clearly this was a movie that wasn't playing by the rules of a, of a more realistic teen movie. Yeah, the, the Fer- Ferris Bueller is a is a fantasy. No no question about that. John Hughes has said as much and it's pretty it's pretty obvious just from from watching it. Um and it's a it's a relatively innocent fantasy, I think. 
Um, I, I think I think the thing that gets lost sort of in the annals of time is Ferris Bueller comes off as so cool in this movie and all of the neat things and has such incredible luck and all of the neat things that he's able to do that we we sort of and the fact that the movie made a star out of Matthew Broderick, we, 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 it gets lost in the shuffle that the real protagonist of Ferris Bueller's Day Off is not Ferris Bueller. It's Cameron, actually. Yeah. And, and, and the movie is really about, the movie is really about, in the end, is about a generous thing that Ferris does because he is, he is painfully aware that his time with his best friend is limited. Huh. Um, and uh, and 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 how the best friend sort of sort of comes into his own because of because of that. Um, There's a real poignance to that, actually. And aside, I was thinking, it's the movie's called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. How would it have been different if the movie was exactly the same, but it was named Cameron Confronts His Life? Like how? Yeah, how, <laughs> it how wouldn't have you, seemed nearly as fun. <laughs> right, right. Um, but it's 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 it. It doesn't, you know, you could have just had a movie about Ferris, Cameron, and Sloan uh, avoiding Ed Rooney, avoiding their Paris parents, arriving safely at home at the end of the day, not getting caught by anybody, and that would have been it. And that would have been a super fun movie. Um, and it may have even, you know, it may have even have have it may have even endured the same way uh, the the actual version of Ferris Bueller's Day Off did. Instead, I think I think the poignancy is really what makes Ferris a special movie and not just a movie about a bunch of kids who steal a Ferrari. Um, it, it, it there's a there's a, a real I, I don't know why I keep coming back to this, but there's there's something kind of sad at the end of Ferris Bueller where you realize where Ferris talks to the screen when they're at the seashore and Cameron has gone catatonic and he says, you know, we just don't have a lot of time left anymore. And the real reason I did this was not to stick it to my dipshit of a principal or, or, you know, um, to see if I can get away with something one more time before school ends, but really because I wanted to do something very special for my best friend. And I think, and in Ferris, who is, who is not a particularly virtuous character for most for most of this movie, there's something very sweet about that. Well, yeah, there's something like in a way he has superpowers, and I think this is another situation where people have forgotten how unique Ferris was as a protagonist when this movie came out because he's not a jock, and I mean, there's a lot of movies no. that, that don't have jocks, but he is, and he's not hyper masculine, no. uh, and but he's super charismatic. And he likes everybody and everybody likes him. You know, basically that he he hovers above all of the pettiness uh, of the teenage world and the teenage world that we see in movies is that somehow Ferris has a pass. Uh, and I can see how that would be irritating, but there's something delightful in the fantasy of this guy who has so much charisma that he doesn't need to be hyper-masculine to have the good-looking girlfriend. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't even have to be like the, the super straight-A student. A in a weird aside, he got a computer instead of a car, which is sort of one of the things that rankles him. That's such a 21st century thing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. that, 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 that these days, teenagers are far more likely to invest their movie into smart or their money into smartphones or, or technologies that, that aren't about, uh, you know, physical mobility because you don't need a car to... to, to communicate with the pretty girls or the or the handsome boys these days uh, but that's just an aside um so i was delighted by the ferris bueller character i think i've heard you say before that you identified with cameron is that true 
I, I I think I identified with Cameron more than Ferris. I, I, I was, you know, I was I was an oldest kid, and I was, um, but my brothers and I had very different interests than one another, and so I, I always felt like a particularly lonely kid. Hmm. So I think instead of identifying with a certain character, I always identified with the notion of friendships. Um, Movies, movies about a a tight knit gang of people, be it the three best friends in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, or the four in Stand by Me, or you know the group of sort of kids all from the same neighborhood in The Goonies. Um, I really identified with like having your tribe, um, and 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 in fact, you know, one of the one of the really special things I discovered in researching Brat Pack America was that John Hughes wrote Ferris Bueller about he and his high school girlfriend who later became his wife and his best friend and like the kind of adventures they would have together. And so, so that, that very special relationship of his was the inspiration for the special, uh, uh, um, uh, triumvirate at the center of this movie. Um, and uh, he, he actually, there's, there's a rare, hard to find, well, not super hard to find, it's on YouTube, but um, director's commentary of Ferris. It's the only movie John Hughes ever did a director's commentary for. And he talks about the fact that, like, he, one of the things he says is it's unlikely that the romance between Sloan and Ferris continues on into college. Um, it is highly likely that Sloan, Ferris, and Cameron stay best friends for the rest of their lives. Huh. And I just I thought that was very I thought that I, I was very moved by that. Well, I read the script way back mm-hmm. in the day. The Wichita Public Library had somehow they'd gotten a hold of these like pirated photocopied scripts and that they put in bindings and kept on the shelf. And I want to get to mm. that in a second. The what if in this situation would be like the Cameron Chronicles at age thirty five. Like how did this <laughs> day change his life? Like who is so Cameron? True. I would I would love to see that movie. Because I think a cheaper version of this is that Ferris gets Cameron laid, you know, Ferris gives Cameron something superficial and low stakes. This is a, a movie where where Cameron's father's car, you know, gets destroyed. Um, right. <laughs> and, and the immediate sequel is almost like Stand By Me, where Ace goes back and beats the crap out of the kids. You know, the, the immediate sequel to this is what happens when Cameron's dad gets home. But the more compelling sequel, <laughs> I think, is how, how does this make Cameron who he is? Now, I'll let you co- comment on all this in a second, but I, I refound that script. And there's some great lines in it that really puts you into the mind of John Hughes when he was writing it. And one line... Uh, is sort of about what's at stake. And he's, Ferris is talking about preempting boredom. He says, a lot of people ditch and feel great for about an hour. Then they realize there's nothing to do, TV and food. I myself have gotten, have ditched and gotten so bored I did homework. Figure that shit out. So <laughs> that's great. The fact that this turns into a travel movie is, is it's a great Chicago travel movie. And, and, and you, can, you can poke fun at the fact that these are fairly cliched attractions that they go to. But mm. Ferris clearly is, he has a menu of attractions to make cameras day better. Another line that he comes into, which ties, that is from the original script that didn't make it into the movie, that, it, that touches on themes from your book, is Ferris reflecting on his mother. He says, my mother was a hippie, but she lost it. She got old. If she listens to the White Album now, she doesn't hear music. She hears memories. Nostalgia is her favorite drug. It'll probably be mine, too. I hope not. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, God, that's really something. Yeah. Yeah. So isn't that interesting to get a window, not just to speculate on where these characters will be when they're in their 30s, but also to see what what um, John Hughes sort of was thinking when he was writing them? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's um I mean he wrote he wrote Ferris he wrote the screenplay for Ferris so fast. He wrote it in he wrote it in like a week um in in the in the he wrote it in like a week while he was while he was still chatting with um chatting with Howard Deutsch about directing Pretty in Pink. And I think um, I think he deserves he, he deserves more credit than Jack Kerouac and his strip of, of butcher paper for On the Road. I think the fact that this movie was written so quickly uh, is a great uh, is a great achievement. I, I think so too. Yeah, I mean the fact that you know the, the and and the fact that John again it's in all of John Hughes's movies begin with a very simple premise. I, I think for this one it was kid has greatest day off of school. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, and, and that's what he told Howie Deutsch he was working on when the two of them were chatting about pretty in pink. And then like, um, one weekend he just sat and cranked the whole thing out and it was Ferris Bueller's day off, which is so much more than kid has greatest day off of school. Yeah. Um, you know, he did, the, he had the same, the same thing happened when he wrote home alone, you know, he and his family were on their way to Christmas vacation and they were getting in the car and John Hughes goes, wait one second. And he, he ran back into the house and wrote down on a legal pad somewhere. Um, what if one kid got left home when we went on Christmas vacation huh. and then left and came back and wrote home alone? <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think there, uh, that's really cool, though. Like, I, 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 I'm a big fan of sort of seeing rough drafts of things and seeing what what stayed and what and what left. I, apparently, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of different different points of entry, you know, open and closing during during the the concept to turning Ferris Bueller into what we have now. But while we're in the fantasy category, I want to talk yeah. about um, Risky Business, uh, which which is also a very quotable movie. You know, my friends were quoting it to me before I actually saw it. And Back to the Future. And Back to the Future is, in a way, it's its, its own monster. And in a way, it's a weirdly perfect movie from my perspective. Uh, um, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe for that, we don't need to talk about it too much, uh, just because the stakes of Back to the Future are a little bit different. But just because I love that movie so much, I want to hear you talk about it. Uh, so talk about that for a second, and then we'll get to risky business before we move on to a new category. Yeah, two two things. Like, yeah, again, I've seen I've seen Back to the Future like like seventy five times, and I actually got to see the thirtieth anniversary at Radio City Music Hall with a live orchestra sitting next to my dad, which was the perfect wow uh, one of those one of those perfect embodiment of perfect marriage of movie and place. Um, and but the two things that I I, I sort of noticed in researching Back to the Future are uh, one, it is it is a movie that where the where the past is the 1950s and the present is the 1980s uh, and therefore kind of leaves out everything between them which was a which was a fairly common thing to do in the 1980s which didn't like which had had, had a big uh, in the conservative Reagan era 1980s acknowledging the 1960s for good or for bad was often was often uh, uh, deliberately left out of movies about the past and the present yeah. um, or, or accidentally left out of movies about the past and the present I, I'm Everybody who made Back to the Future was a liberal Democrat, so I, I I don't think it was deliberate in this case. I think there's so much to be to be gained from Back to the Future um, that uh, even though I've seen it that many times, even though it has a place of honor in my book, I, I I still miss things, which is why I like talking about it with people. You know, I it, there's a great book that there's a great book also about 80s teen movies that Hadley Friedman wrote called Life Moves Pretty Fast, and she says the wonderful thing about Back to the Future is Back to the the, the main characters in Back to the Future even even though it's a teen movie are the parents. Um, it's really a movie about two parents falling in love um, and not about, and not about like what a, uh, 
Marty Marty exists to make his parents come together and therefore assure his own continued existence. But as as Miss Friedman said, and I agree with, if this movie was made today, it would all just be about what a badass Marty was. Huh. Um, the parents would be would be would be a plot point, but they but you you wouldn't need them in nearly the way you do for Back to the Future to be itself. I think this touches on one reason why. For years, I never watched the sequels to Back to the Future, and then I watched them once and, and never really thought about them again. Me uh, too. Because then it becomes about Marty and his, you know, at the end of the movie, it's like, uh, this is, you know, Doc comes back and says, we need to go back to the future or whatever, you know, because there's a problem with your kids. In a way, it's like, I don't want to know about anything else. I love this movie so much. I guess it's sort of like I, I saw another time travel movie, The Terminator, when I was a teenager, and um, uh-huh. I just can't watch any of the sequels, including T2, which people love oftentimes before the first one, because there's something... There was something something so pure about that, and and so Back to the Future was was it just it was such a satisfying movie, and, yeah. And 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 movies are often tinkered with you know f- with dozens of screenwriters trying to create that sense of satisfaction. For me as a fifteen year old, and for me as a, as a, a guy who's a forty eight seven year old now, it's just it remains a satisfying movie for me. There's not, I mean, there isn't a single moment out of place in that movie. Like like every single second of it matters. Um, and that's why, and, and and that's, to me, that's part of its genius, you know, and, and, and strangely enough that happens in, in, in ways that seem unexpected too. I mean, who would have thought like who imagine pitching this, like, like, Oh, here, here's our, here's our idea. And I want to cast the, um, uptight guy from family guy and from family ties and the weird guy from taxi. Hmm. And, 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 and by the way, they'll become one of the greatest pairs in movie history. It, it sounds insane. <laughs> and Chris and Crispin Glover is going to be a middle-aged male, a father figure, right? Right. Who's going to be married to Leah Thompson. Right. Go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very delightful. Um, and I might leave that there and, and touch on risky business, which in a way it's, it's this other Chicago teen movie that involves the destruction of a car. Um, uh, yeah, but, strangely enough, yeah. But, but it's a different monster than Ferris Bueller. So what I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on, on risky business and its place in the pantheon. I just, you know, I, broke my heart that I could not find a place in this book for risky business. I actually had a chapter that it was in about the cities and the suburbs in, in eighties teen movies. And we had to cut that chapter out for, for length. Um, but I think risky business is risky business is, is a work of art. Like it's a, um, I really love movies that are about a very well-established genre and kind of teeter on the edge of reality the way risky business does. Um, Having Tangerine Dreams score that movie, one of the great, one of the great scoring choices in movie history. Um, yeah, I, I, I got nothing to say about the Tom Cruise underwear dance. Take that for what you will, or, or the, uh, the, you know, the, the sex scene on the train, which is another, another classic cinematic moment from Risky Business. Mm-hmm. I just think, I just think the, 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 the art, how, how wickedly funny and dark that movie is. Like, let's make a movie about '80s greed and let's put it in the mouth of a high school student who has a a future entrepreneurs of America project to do and his project is becoming a pimp like what a what a what a and, you know could go right and could go terribly wrong but like what a what a brilliant way to comment on greed and consumerism and um and human desire um 
And it strikes, it strikes that note of fantasy, too, where it doesn't lose you. You know, there's a million ways this could have been a terrible movie, you know. Yeah. Uh, the Young Pimp Chronicles. Uh, uh, exactly. But, but yeah. somehow, even like when the, when the Princeton recruiter shows up at the party and then somehow it ends up that he gets admitted into Princeton, I mean, that could have been handled, you know, that could have just seemed stupid. But somehow you sort of cheer for it at the end. You know, somehow it, it, all, yeah. it all folds together under this fantasy. In, in a way, I, I haven't heard it framed in that 80s way, but the, the, the Wall Streetness of this, you know, of course, the movie Wall Street um, – uh, has its its comeuppance. The the Charlie Sheen character has its comeuppance, but this is almost part of that satire: is that he's actually rewarded in the end uh, for his success as a pimp. Um, so, and and, right. we, and and we cheer for it, right? Right, and and but there's sort of a a dark tone of like you're hearing you're. You're almost here, even though the, the the last lines of the movie are Joel giving his like um, winner's speech as the future entrepreneurs of America thing. You're almost hearing it's almost like you're hearing from adult Joel, like my name is Joel Goodson, ideal in human fulfillment. I do. It's almost like you're hearing from Joel at 40 who's become that pimp character. Huh. Um, and then he utters the line that that pimp character said to him, time of your life, huh, kid? Um, so there is something, there is something, uh, there's something, uh, uh, triumphal about it. There's, it is a, it is a happy ending to a degree. You don't know if him and Rebecca de Mornay ends up together. So it's not a completely happy ending. And you also get the sense that, well, oh, oh shoot. Like Joel has become the villain in this movie or who we conceive of the, as the villain in this movie. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's. It's dark, but like, like, like with a big old, with a big old crooked grin on its face. I just, I, I, I just love the, the, I, I love this movie and I love the tone of it that it's, 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 uh, it's certainly, it's certainly dark, but certainly a comedy at the same time. Yeah. I think, I think the tone, the, the way, do you know who directed that? Uh, a man named Paul Brickman who also wrote it. Okay. Yeah. That somehow the tone makes the movie what it is a different tone and it just wouldn't have worked at all. Right, right. And it's a weird it, it, it is not an obvious choice. Like like you don't say you don't say to yourself, "Oh, here's a movie about a high school kid who for a school project becomes a pimp." Uh, you know, let's 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 shoot it with all these with all these weird Chinese angles and 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 have and have a a a a seventies German synth band score it like, like none of that, like none of that adds up. And then, um, but it works brilliantly in this movie. Um, well, well, that's another, that's another, what if, what happens if you score this with like, um, heavy metal party music or, you know, just again, the, the tone, all the factors that go into creating this tone could have been fumbled, but instead yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a weirdly mesmerizing movie for the factors you just stated. So, yeah. I really hope that whoever that, that that the folks listening to your podcast, Rolf, like like I, I hope their first reaction is to just like grab a notepad and write down all of these movies that they that they need to watch uh, again or for the first time. Um, I hope the second reaction is uh, is 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 read Kevin's book filled with trivia about them. But I hope the first reaction, right. I hope the first reaction, like that that's actually my favorite thing to hear when people read Brat Pack America is, oh shoot, I had to go like make a giant list of of, of movies I need to see all over again. Well, there are like I'm I'm like the only guy of my generation who's never seen The Goonies, for example. I still haven't seen it. Mm. I haven't seen Valley Girl. I haven't seen uh, Legend of Billie Jean and some other movies that you mm. mentioned. But uh, and, and in a way, it's like I, I don't. 
don't know if there's many completists. Maybe it's that my family didn't get a VCR until 1986 or something that I haven't seen them all. But uh, I think there is an element of self-indulgence in this in this episode. I could have invited a lot of people, Kevin, but I, I'm talking to you because <laughs> this is just – I'm just dying to talk about some of this stuff because I'm a travel writer, right? You know, I'm not a cultural critic. I, I'm not – don't have that many direct connections to the film industry yet somehow mm-hmm. – the fact that Walt Whitman shows up a lot in vagabonding, shows up a ton in vagabonding, mm-hmm. you, you trace that history in a way back to Dead Poets Society. There's other factors, but oh, it's, I believe it. it, it's yeah. interesting how movies inform the way we see things. Now, you were just talking about tone, and I think that sort of transitions into the next category, which is the, the One Crazy Night movie, the, these picaresque movies that sort of trace back to American Graffiti, maybe further, you probably know better than me, but really Dazed and Confused is a movie... Um, that has such a great tone. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> the 50s were boring, the 60s rocked, the 70s, oh my God, they obviously suck. Dazed and confused, see it with a bud. I saw this movie on the big screen in Seattle in 1993 when Seattle was the coolest place in the world to be. Yet, wow. Yet it took me through Texas in 1976. It took me back to Kansas in 1989, a year I didn't even enjoy that much, and somehow created this this sense of, of longing and wonder. And somehow that tone made me feel my my middle American teenageness in a very specific way. Uh, and, you know, of course, it's outside of the category of your book because your book is about the, the 80s coming of age movies. But there's there. And of course, you do talk about American graffiti in your book. But there there was something so perfectly uh, achieved in Dazed and Confused. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks this because t- Quentin Tarantino has, has said that he goes back to Dazed and Confused because it's like hanging out with friends. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think if you pick people often go back to Matthew McConaughey, hey, character in this movie but there's so much to love about this movie and i'm just curious to know what you think of it oh yeah i am a huge fan of this movie strangely enough this was a movie that played uh, at midnight screenings while i was in college um i went to college in baltimore and there was a theater in the suburbs that would have midnight screenings and so we would often draw we would often drive out to the burbs and see this movie uh in the middle of the night and uh, it got to the point where just like the rocky horror picture show people started yelling yelling callback lines to the screen like there were there were there were certain things people did like yeah i'm sure some people just came to the theater to smoke pot but people came people showed up dressed in in 70s garb and and as the characters and it was a really like for about 18 months it was a really like special thing yeah i really think dazed and confused even though it is a direct uh uh younger sibling of um of american graffiti uh is really in a class by itself uh not only does it have a bunch of actors in it before they were famous, uh, not only is it filmed um, resplendently in Austin, where I would move to four years after seeing this movie, um, and the very first thing I did was take myself on a Dazed and Confused tour, um, which you couldn't look up back then. I had to kind of make it up as I went along. Um, But I think the other thing it does as a teen movie, brilliantly, is it is that Dazed and Confused is a movie that both romanticizes being a teenager and is highly critical of being nostalgic about being a teenager. Um, the most obvious place in that is at the end where they're all reminiscing on the football field and our main character, Randall Pink Floyd, played by Jeremy London, um, Jason London, I'm sorry, Jason London says, if I ever look back at this as the best time in my life, remind me to kill myself. 
Uh, and that's the kind of abrupt ending of that otherwise really sweet nostalgic scene. Um, I think it's most clear when you pair Dazed and Confused with Everybody Wants Some, you know, uh, Richard Linklater's sort of spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused, which all which takes place in college in the early 1980s. And that movie is about the exact opposite. That movie is about like, like, hang on to your youth as long as you can, um, uh, particularly if you have good friends and people looking out for you. And Dazed and Confused is, is about, you know, uh, is about uh there are better days ahead. Don't get don't get caught up in what's happening now. I, I think that knife twist in of Dazed and Confused made it more special for me. You know, I saw Everybody Wants Some as soon as it became available mm. because I just mm-hmm. love Richard Linklater in, in general. But yeah. it, it didn't re- resonate the same way for me because you have it's just so, such a well observed movie. I mean, there's a there's sort of a bully scene in Dazed and Confused that feels so true because it's about. Uh, Clint and then the Adam Goldberg character, I forget what his name is. Um, Clint just identifies this guy as weaker than, than him. And he creates yeah. a fight out of nowhere in a way that's not sort of an, an on-the-nose bully moment. I, I think mm-hmm. all good – bullying comes into all good um, uh, you know, teen movies because it's part of being a teen. But it's such a subtle thing. It doesn't call attention to itself. It's just this true moment where this guy is just in passing talking about how people are smoking reefer. And then Clint says, hey, maybe I like to smoke reefer. And then the Adam Goldberg character is like, well, you know, I wasn't commenting. Yeah, I wasn't saying it as an insult. And so they start this. It creates this seed in the Adam Goldberg character where he eventually goes back and sucker punches Clint and they have this fight and it becomes this this moment. And I, I think that there's lots of moments in Dazed and Confused that just have a, a truth to their observation. They don't call attention to themselves, but they are very much a part of how teen life plays out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the scene where the scene where Mitch, um, where Mitch, played by Wiley Wiggins, goes to buy booze and has to, you know, and has to sort of talk his way into buying booze. Um, and it's this, it's this perfect. Talk about the world's most cliched scene in a teen movie, and yet the way he kind of talks his way around the old man in, into just having a conversation with him. And then at some point the old man is like, the old man just, just looks at him and goes, you're 18. Right. And, and then Mitch goes, yeah. And then they just keep, keep on with the conversation. And well, he um, also, he also paraphrases Wooderson. Like he's been talking right. to Wooderson who is over 18. And right. he, he just sort of pretends that he has Wooderson's job, you know? Right. Exactly. I work for the city. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's great. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the moments where the moments where like, like all of these, all of these really fantastic, I, I mean, all of these seemingly conventional moments that take a left turn um, when, you know, instead of, instead of whapping Mitch on the butt with a paddle, Randall Floyd, you know, doesn't, and then drives him home and invites him to come and party afterwards. And then, uh, or, or when, um, uh, or when, you know, Wooderson, you know, when Wooderson runs into, uh, runs into, uh, uh, Anthony Rapp and Adam Goldberg at the gas station and invites the the uh, Marissa Rabizi, the the girl who's with them, to the party. I mean, all of these all of these scenes that you've seen some version of in every other teen movie have their own unique uh, 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 beginning and ending in this movie that that eventually all adds up to where the movie is going. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's constructed like a Swiss clock. It's just, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's like brilliantly engineered, like, like, and to think that it was only Richard Linklater's second movie is just remarkable. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that that scene is fun because it's it's another true moment. He's he's interested in the redhead, 
and that's sort of what gets her to the party and eventually mm-hmm. he gets her phone number but it's it's not it doesn't become a part of the plot it's just this little no. moment where just the guy, kind of there yeah the, the creepy guy who who's graduated for a couple of years but won't leave is then hitting on the smart girl but she sort mm-hmm. of likes it you know in that way in that ambiguous way and it doesn't really amount to anything uh but it's just one of those fun observed details and one great thing about richard linklater and what he does in this and other movies is that jocks can become a stereotype and there's athletes at the center of this movie and oftentimes they're either the heroes of the movie or the villains of the movie but in richard linklater movies they're actually these human characters who aren't necessarily dumbasses or heroes they're just some of them are dumbasses like the ben affleck character and then Mm -hmm. some of them are more thoughtful like the randall pink character uh and i really appreciated that because i think sometimes we take our cues from high school movies to think that we do grow up in siloed categories, but I was a guy who did sports and read books, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. Richard Linklater was a guy who similarly um, explores teenhood through these athlete characters who are not beholden to the stereotypes we usually superimpose over them. Yeah. Every, practically every Richard Linklater movie is about time in some way or another. Um, And usually, particularly in this earlier phase of his career, his movies were very languid and kind of took their time happening. You know, Slacker, his first movie, takes place on a single day. Dazed and Confused on a single night. Um, and Waking Life is, you know, which was, I think, his fourth or fifth movie, entirely consumed with the idea of time. Um, where that plays out in a movie like Dazed and Confused, and, in a, and, and I think in Everybody Wants Some also, is that when you are a teenager or a young person, time is this weird thing where it both seems endless and seems to go too fast. And in the course of that, you're trying to figure yourself out. So there's an opportunity to try on a lot of different hats to see who you are because time is not, because forming an identity is not, is not, time is not crashing down on you to form an identity. Um, and as, Consequently, like, yeah, I think I think we see that in his characters. Characters manage to be a couple of different things at the same time, as if symbolically to indicate that they're in the process of trying to figure out who they are. And they're exploring, you know, Pink is exploring a kind of rebellion. You know, he's, he doesn't want to take the drug test, you know. Right. Th- these are people who are thinking out loud of who they're becoming in a, in, in a non-categorical way, I think. Uh, and, you know... One, obviously, Boyhood is very much about time when we're thinking of Linklater mm. movies because he filmed it over the course of, what, 12 years um, yeah. with the same actors. And, and it's really brilliant in that sense. But I think one really heartrending, in a sense, example of his explorations of time is the Before trilogy, the Before Sunrise, Before yeah. Sunset, and Before yeah. Midnight. Because there's something really i mean it's a before sunrise is a super chatty movie i saw it in wichita with some teenagers behind me who were waiting for something to blow up i mean they just didn't get the movie i had to change seats because i was tired of them complaining about it and it's it's very in its conversations and it's in its exploration of potential of romance and what if these people would meet again what if they don't meet again and they only have this moment which is returned to in the second movie but the the, the third movie is just I don't know if heartbreaking is the right word, but there's just this dose of reality when we see them as a couple, you know, after all these years uh, dealing with each other. And so I think the Before Trilogy takes the romantic idea of, it's not quite a romantic comedy, but it's this movie about people being attracted to each other. And sure, they, they walk off into the sunrise, so to speak, 
But then we see them, you know, years later and before midnight and all the complications of human relationships have reared their head. And I think yeah. that's such an interesting way to explore time through the idea of love and, and human relationships. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love all of those movies. I, I've never made the point of seeing them all in a row, which I really need to do. Before Sunrise was pivotal to me because I, I think I was at exactly the right age when that movie came out and I was feeling a little lost and like, yeah, wouldn't I just like to – um, I wish I, at the time, I think I'm more that way now, but at the time I was like, I wish I was the kind of person who had the courage to just, you know, get off the, get off the train in a strange city and spend the night wandering around and seeing what, what, you know, what the night will bring. Um, it, it, it's so interesting. I mean, it's a travel movie, but I actually, when that came out, I hadn't traveled overseas yet. I'm a travel guy. Mm. And, and so it's sort of part of this, your real fantasy. And I, and I wonder sometimes how technology would change that movie if they were swiping Tinder on a train. I mean, people, one, train travel is less common because there's cheaper ways to get around. Uh, but how would that movie play out in, in 2018 when people don't have to be in a physical room to meet each other in, in a romantic sense anymore? You know, when people are um, oftentimes they don't stay in youth hostels because they're pooling their money and getting an Airbnb, which is a better value or, you know, some sort of rental. So anyway, that's a thought experiment. It's a good about question, yeah. But yeah. In, in a way you talk about in, in, in your book, you talk about sense of place and this technologically specific period. And of course, it doesn't touch on Before Sunrise, which could be considered a, a coming of age movie. But it, that's another one of my what ifs. What if... That movie could it happen in the same way in a, in a, in 2018? So yeah. Anyway, yeah. I won't let you speculate because I want to keep moving forward uh, to dark teen movies. Um, and actually, River's Edge just blew me away when I saw it. Where's Jamie? I killed her. This is unreal, completely unreal. Lane saying Samson killed Jamie. And you believe them? Well, a bunch of us are going out there to check it out. I don't know. It's probably some joke. There's a very big secret in a small American town. We can't panic, though. We're dead if we panic, okay? You say, Lane. Like it, it wasn't in every multiplex, but it's a movie that had, like, Slayer and Hallow's Eve in it. It's a movie that, at the time, it went against type so completely that uh, that it just, it just really startled me. You know, the idea that... Um, you know, there's this, there, it's a dead body movie in a sense. Yeah. But, but the dead body is revealed at the very beginning of the movie. And then these people have to act around it. And so it was a startling movie when I first saw it, um, just in the ways that it didn't, there wasn't a middle class core to this. You know, these, these were these were more lower class kids. In retrospect, it had grunge styling down to a T. I think you're absolutely right. River's Edge is a, is a movie that was sort of, grunge before grunge and it was also a movie it was also a movie that although there were several of these in the 80s it, it, it really the the idea of, of a true crime of a true crime teen drama would come along much later uh, this is based on a true story of a of a guy who killed his girlfriend in in a suburb of san jose california and then left her body by the river's edge and invited his friends to party by this body for a week or so until until someone called in to, called it into the cops um to me, River's Edge was the first movie to win an Independent Spirit Award, which seems kind of right. Um, uh, the first Best Picture Independent Spirit Award winner. Uh, and to me, it's kind of part of a package of with with Over the Edge and Legend of Billie Jean and a, a, a genre that sort of 
reaches its ascent with Heather's um, movies that uh, are not only about bad kids doing bad things and good kids getting swept under the undertow of bad kids doing bad things, um, but are also uh, kind of slightly apocalyptic visions of what the world looks like if it was if it was only kids kids running things. Adults are almost always pushed to the sides of these movies and are seen as irrelevant or out of date. And um, Well, this is a movie with the, with just these ineffectual hippie teachers. And then, yeah. then um, when, the, when the Keanu Reeves character is smoking dope and his mom calls him out, he says, don't worry, mom, it's not yours. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and the the sort of return to the screen of Dennis Hopper in this movie as as a kind of uh, uh, deranged version of of the popular conception of Dennis Hopper, quite frankly, um, you know, yeah, a, a, a terrifying character. Uh, yeah, Dennis Hopper is is really is really arresting in this movie. Yeah, um, sort of what would happen if Dennis Hopper from something went horribly wrong with Dennis Hopper from Apocalypse Now? Like, is 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 that guy? Um, I I'm a big fan of. I'm a big fan of all of these movies. I think they're an, a really interesting counterpoint to the John Hughes movies. And I also think they're an interesting look at kind of what we viewed as the teen problem in the 1980s, which I say in quotes because it really wasn't a problem at all. Um, and, and, and how that has affected, you know, how that has affected how we view teenagers and, and, and kids and discipline going forward. Um, I think I, I think and, and the fact that these movies were in general not hits and were seen as were seen as kind of underground classics to me is um, to me is is to me they're almost like they're almost like rare B sides. Well, one recent uh, podcast interview I do that might run after your episode actually was about the idea of satanic backward masking in music in the 1980s yeah. mm -hmm. and uh which sort of snowballed into this satanic panic which was really about adults being disingenuous about the true nature of what kids are coming up against yeah uh, and, and this is sort of an aside but it's relevant to river's edge where you know the reason the kids are messed up in river's edge is that their parents are messed up and, the, and their, their teachers aren't taking their problems seriously and yeah. then and then you have this idea that Oh well, here's our one answer problem, and this is concurrent to you know the '80s. Is that yeah, Satan? You know, hidden messages in rock are ruining our kids. You know, mm -hmm. there's this there's this simplistic, and and I'm sure this applies in ways to other decades, maybe even to the way that people are complaining about millennials now, for example. Yeah. Um, just the idea that it, that adults. I mean, a movie like The Breakfast Club says that adults don't understand what the inner life of a teen is like. This is right. a movie where it's almost like a sort of at, a, at a, a structural level, adults not only don't understand that they're not making decisions in the best interest of their kids either, you know, that yeah. we're, we're complaining about Satan when we really should be taking a closer look and, and, and stop having cartoonish suggestions for why things are going wrong. Exactly. Uh, the adults barely deserve to be adults in this movie. Um, that's that's kind of the kind of the speculation. And it's an interesting doppelganger to Over the Edge, which came out seven years earlier and was really the adults are much more fully fleshed out in Over the Edge. But that movie seems to be saying the adults are just really, really naive about about what was the, the, the right environment to raise one's kids in. Um, and uh, and here is the result. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's move on to um, to sports movies that evoke place. 
the heart of your thesis in your book about sense of place really comes through or came through to me in these sports movies. Um, and uh, I think Breaking Away is probably the best example from your book. Enrico Giamonde spends eight hours a day training to be the finest racer in all of Italy. But Enrico has a problem. He's not in Italy. He's in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, Friday Night Lights, which was actually being written as a book uh, in the late 1980s. I think the guys yeah. in, in that original book were in the same graduating class in 1989 as me. Later became mm. a Billy Bob Thornton movie, but really, you know, became most affecting, I think, for me and many lists of viewers uh, as a TV show when it, when it uh, uh, yeah. becomes about Dylan, Texas, and really began to show us things that we hadn't seen before on television, which is, you know... Um, characters uh, interacting with, with place. I mean, you have the Tim Riggins character who ultimately in that show decides to stay in, 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 in the small town, Texas, which I thought was very interesting. And then you have characters going to church and, and sort of, and also that movie evokes uh, uh, the dynamics of a middle-class marriage, which was not glossed over in ways that it has before. Um, and I think there's a lot of parallels between Friday Night Lights and uh, Breaking Away. So having written about one, but not another, um, how would you connect these or would you even connect these as movies? Yeah, I, I think Breaking Away sort of begins something that Friday Night Lights brings to its full conclusion. Uh, Breaking Away is, is a sports movie, but the sports are kind of the sports are not deeply connected to the town. Um, this is a bike race. There's a bike race that Breaking Away is based. There is an actual bike race that happens on the campus of Indiana University and has for since the 50s. It, it was around long before Breaking Away and continues to this day. Um, bicycling happens to be something this movie picks up on. But really, the story of Bloomington in this movie is the story is, is in parallel with the main characters who are working class kids having recently graduated from high school and realizing the same working class jobs that their fathers and mothers had are no longer available to them. The town that 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 they that their parents grew up in doesn't exist anymore and is now a college town for people with college degrees. Um, the sports and the and the town are 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 part of the same story, but not not interwoven with one another. Um, whereas, uh, if you look at Friday Night Lights, and of course fr the the brilliant. In book Friday Night Lights is written is written in about 1988 and 89 published in 1990. The movie Friday Night Lights still takes place in the 1980s, even though it was made in 2004. And in, then in Odessa, Texas, right? In Odessa, Texas, yeah. right? And then uh, uh, and then leap forward to I I don't. 2010, 2011 or something, when the television show comes out, that takes place in the present in a fictional place called Dillon, Texas, but it's filmed in Austin, which ironically at the time is the great, is not a poor down on its luck town at all, is in fact the great success story of, of modern Texas. Um, but Friday Night Lights, the story, if you take the book, the movie, and the television show all as part of a whole, is all really about a town that 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 places way too much investment in its high school football team because it has nothing else to be proud of. Um, and that is a, that is a particularly American story that that really began its tragic descent in the 1980s when man, when manufacturing starts to move overseas. Um, and in the case of Odessa, which was an oil town, was was entirely tied to the oil economy. 
Um, so I, I think that the thing that that's the thing that these movies do really well. And there's, and there's the beginnings of it in, in sports movies from the 1980s. Um, definitely all the right moves, which is about football in a steel town in Pennsylvania and definitely Hoosiers, which, which oddly enough is a movie that's set in the 1950s, but has the same themes. Uh, a great moment where, where Barbara Hershey says to Gene Hackman playing the main character, the basketball coach in Hoosiers, nobody comes to Hickory, Indiana, unless they're running from something. Um, all Hickory, Indiana has is this high school foot is this high school basketball team. And imagine the burden that places on a bunch of 17 year olds who happen to be good at basketball. Um, I think, uh, and Friday night lights is really the example that turns that into something epic, like a Greek tragedy, um, where you see people's lives being ruined because they are told by all of their friends and neighbors that the best thing they will ever do will be over by the time they're 20. Um, and, uh, and it ruins them. I, I mean, the, the, the book, the Fri Friday night lights actually, you know, in, in later editions catches up with the true light, true, the, the actual characters in it. And some of them made it out of Odessa and turned out okay. And many of them, most of them did not. Um, and, um, and it's really, it's really sad, but I think I think the the, the over importance we place on sports and our and our our the sort of emptiness at the center of our civic culture is a very American story, and I think I think Friday Night Lights is really the the is really the the, the finest telling of it that I can think of. It's an interesting sort of laboratory for exploring ideas from season to season, because um, one of my favorite sports movies involving teenagers probably isn't necessarily coming of age, but it's Remember the Titans. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, which is about well, what happens when you sort of bring these two, a black school and a, and a white school together and have to decide which person is going to coach the football team. And then the, the, the players sort of have to learn how to be how to be teammates. Uh, and that actually comes out of a real situation where the, the screenwriter was looking around at, at this part of Virginia, sort of a greater DC area and wondering why black people and, and white people were so comfortable with each other when in other parts of the country they weren't. And so you sort of traced mm -hmm. backwards to this time where a kind of in, instance of forced integration um, forced people to work together. And you see that kind of idea in Friday Night Lights, you know, um, uh, when Coach ends up going to this high school across the tracks and um, there's there's ideas of, of race and class and identity and, and upward mobility versus its opposite uh, that can be explored in a multi-season show like Friday Night Lights. And in a way, it's sort of cheating to talk about it because movies have to evoke their story in 90 minutes, whereas Friday Night yeah. Lights had, had several seasons to look at this. Um, if you subtract its weird second season where Jesse Plemons was involved in a murder plot. Um, yeah, please, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, I, when, I, when, I, when I told my sister to watch it, she loved it. I just said, don't watch season two, you won't miss anything. And I think the show mm. knew that. If you watch season three, it sort of just picks up where season one left off. Yeah, that was one of those shows that unfortunately the narrative gets all tangled up in network politics and, you know, whether the show was going to be canceled and who was going to carry it. And, 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 and that was, season two was the unfortunate result of that. Let's go yeah. on to the last category, which is um, sort of the autobiographical coming of age story. My my example was uh, almost famous. He's going to be a true journalist. You cannot make friends with the rock star. They're going to fly you places for free. Oh! You're going to meet girls. 
Oh God, it's gonna get ugly. Yes, the Cameron Crowe movie, which interestingly was was one of his later movies. You know, Say Anything was the first movie that he um, directed, and he actually wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yes. Um, which we haven't touched on. I'm so I guess I'm surprised. I actually had that categorized as a dark teen movie, probably because when I first watched it, I was expecting something happy go lucky, and there's actually an abortion. Uh, right aspect to the movie, so yeah, I think way ahead that, of its time. Yeah, my impressions uh, of that uh, were were affected by the fact that it I, it was something unexpected, and and that even though there are some happy go lucky aspects of that movie, I was really taken aback by its realism. I mean, it, you know, there's the famous judge, uh, what's his name, Judge Reinhold. Reinhold, yeah, M- masturbation scene, and and yeah. uh, you know, th- there's all these classic scenes that people talk about it, but I was really taken aback by how realistic that was, and I think, actually, in a way, in a way, um, almost famous doesn't hinge on realism, though. Um, no, it's this coming of age story, and it's God, I love it so much. I come back to it again and again. He's able to convey ideas about. Uh, coming of age through an extraordinary situation. Not all of us get to be rock journalists who are on the road when we should be in school, but somehow, yeah. <laughs> somehow, I'm 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 really drawn to that movie, and that's really outside of the wheelhouse of your book. And in fact, it, I think it came out in 2000, so it's not even a 90s movie, uh, yeah. but it's set in the in in the 70s. Uh, and and uh, what's your take on it? I, I just love that movie, and and it's like the movie that Cameron Crowe always felt like he had to tell. Um, I, I, Cameron Crowe was, 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 was not even a young person. He was already in his mid twenties in his early twenties when he wrote fast times at Richmond high. So he, he was never like a young person writing about young people. Um, and, and yet I think his, his best stuff is often about, is always about young people. When, when Cameron Crowe starts to talk about sort of middle-aged men at, 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 at transitional points in their lives, I think his movies really, really ride off a cliff at that point. Um, but the idea, I, I think there's so much purity and goodwill in Almost Famous, and, 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 and it strikes exactly the right tone in getting there. If you, if you were stuck with, if you said, oh, I want to tell my incredibly lucky, fortunate story of getting to go on the road with, you know, it was the Allman Brothers in real life, but um, uh, with a with a rock and roll band at age eighteen, and and having everything kind of work out okay, and the groupies looked after me, and nobody you know left me by the side of the road in Kansas City or something like that because they thought I was annoying, um, and I didn't make a complete ass of myself, you know, with Rolling Stone magazine. Um, I, I it really like everything kind of worked out great, and yet the movie seems to. Um, strikes exactly the right tone of kind of wistfulness and joy um, and memory. Uh, I mean, it's clearly something that happened a long time ago. And, and, and the movie is, is, is really saying, you know, wasn't, and the movie it, it operates from a very naive place. You know, wasn't it wonderful when music was everything? That's what that music. That's what that movie is about. And, you know, it's all contained in the last line. Um, and there's so many layers of subtlety there too, because yeah. I think one of the most famous scenes is is a makeup scene when they're on the bus and Russell has quit the band and dropped acid in Topeka, Kansas, and had this experience. And yeah. they they sing uh, an Elton John song. They sing Tiny, Tiny Dancer. Tiny yeah. Dancer. What a, what a great scene! But I think the re- one reason why that scene is so satisfying in the movie is that Russell goes through his own form of time travel. He's looking for something real, and maybe because I'm from Kansas and this is set in Kansas, mm. I paid special attention to that. 
and he goes to this house party and he just identifies these teenagers as real. You know, you're real. Yeah. You, want, you want to see me feed a rat to my snake? Yes. And so yeah. basically Russell is, is, is struggling at that time. And this just shows you how, how many subtleties are in the movie. Um, with his own, it's it's a very nostalgic time for him. That basically authenticity is tied to his own point in life when he was younger and he was loving music so much, and when he was just spontaneously being a kid, you know. And and mm-hmm. part of his struggle in the movie is is coming up against the, you know the fact that he is now the person who's communicating through stereo speakers to other people. That he's no longer yeah. on the other side of that divide. Um, and so I just, it, it was, we, we've talked about nostalgia several times here, and it's just interesting how that's a very subtly played scene where Russell is, he's coming face to face with nostalgia in the, in the form of actual teenagers. And then of course he becomes the jackass who jumps off the roof and declares himself a golden God. Um, but just to finish this thought, thought here, I wrote down some conflicts after I saw this movie for the umpteenth time. And Cameron Crowe is, is able, you know, sort of following your point about how this movie could have not has been as good, is that he's able to, to put all of these conflicts in the movie without really hitting us over the head with them. And they yeah. include, one, Russell is better than the other people in the band. Two, William can't be friends with the band, you know, because Philip Seymour Hoffman has warned him against it. Yeah. William loves Penny. William needs the story. William's mom doesn't get it. William is missing school. William is not cool. William needs to interview Russell. And of course, the band wants to look cool. Those are just some conflicts that I jotted down. There's probably three times as many of these subtle conflicts. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The, the, God, the the movie does such a great job at, at at you know keeping all of the human dynamics like ball like juggling balls in the air, um, a really apt you know and, and the sort of rock and roll tour bus is a really apt metaphor for for all of those human dynamics you know stuck in one place together, um, contrasted with, with with the sense of freedom that the music is supposed to bring, um, and and the lawlessness that a, that a that a tour particularly back then was supposed to be. Um, I um yeah I just I just love that movie. I, I don't watch it very often. It, it it for some reason it makes me it makes me wish I had done more exciting things as a teenager, not that I ever had the chance to follow the Allman Brothers on tour, but um but uh I just yeah, I think it's um the right before the moment you just mentioned where they're on the bus and they sing Tiny Dancer, probably the most famous moment in the movie. They're leaving the party in Kansas City and the bus is pulling away and it's dawn. And you see from the point of view of the tour bus, the kids standing on the sidewalk waving as the bus goes and the shot is in slow motion. And I just, I just burst into tears. Like every time I see that, like it's that, that whole sense of like, like, like this, this amazing night we all shared together that will never be repeated ever again. And, um, I, uh, I, yeah, I just, I, I, I think, I think that movie has a lot of moments like that, but that, that is the one that gets me every time. Yeah. There's so much contained in that sequence, you know, from, mm-hmm. from Russell quitting the band to him going to the party to, to that makeup scene. And, and it's all subtle. It's, you know, there's a million ways Cameron Crowe could have hit us over the head with that. Um, but he managed to pull, pull it off with subtlety. Now, the other 
movie, the other TV show I mentioned in this category is Freaks and Geeks, which is sort of the, the opposite of this. It's, it's sort of about the banality of, of being a teenager. It's not about being connected to anything exotic. Actually, this mm-hmm. is another show that's set in Michigan. Of course, yep. almost famous, the band is from Troy, Michigan. So there's a lot of Michigan yeah. uh, p- pumping through the veins of, of coming of age movies. But mm-hmm. Freaks and Geeks is a show. I, I'd been traveling overseas. I'd, I'd been living in Korea and, and vagabonding through Asia. I was home in Kansas for a couple of weeks and I just turned on the TV and, and there's this show that was so true and so relatable to me that like within seven minutes, I put in a VCR tape, this is 1999, and started recording it because I didn't, I wanted to hold on to this, you know, it was, it was pre-digital media. I didn't know if I was ever going to see it again. Yeah. Uh, and Freaks and Geeks, like one of the little things I've, uh, you know, notes I've made in my notebook is which characters I identified with. And I haven't touched on that too much, but like Sam Weir, I was Sam Weir when I was, when I was, oh, in how about grade, that? you know, um, and I had a big sister and, and, you know, like I identified with Gordy and stand by me because he was a writer, but, um, you know, Gordy has a strained relationship with his parents. I got along fine with my parents. And so just that, that family quartet and the younger brother and the older sister and all of these real scenes about the humiliations of high school just blew me away. And of course, you know, it's not a direct evocation of my life any more than Dazed and Confused was, but it was just, I'd never seen anything like that in art before. And I think, I'll let you chime in in a second, but the fact, people were heartbroken when the show wasn't renewed, but I think that's what made it perfect, is that they uh, they didn't have future seasons that would ruin the show, that it was this contained show that was obviously very specific to life of Paul Feig, and um, Judd Apatow, I think, produced it, but yeah, Paul, it sort of comes out of Paul Feig's brain pan. Uh, and so to this day, I, I'm just, I'm just delighted to go back to freaks and geeks and, and relive these scenes. I've probably seen the whole series like five or six times now. Yeah. I, I've only seen it once and I saw it many years after it was originally on the air. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm enormously fond of it. And I think, I, I think from my own point of view, seeing it after, you know, at that point, 20 years of 20, 25 years of, of seeing, um, uh, teen entertainment and teen movies and coming of age movies. I remember saying to myself, like, how can this possibly be different? And if you look at the iconic moments of freaks and geeks, they're, they they are rarely repeated in in other teen movies and television shows. I, 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 I still, to this day, don't know how those people managed to do it, but like, what, what are some of your favorite iconic moments from that show? I, you know, if look at the ending of the first episode, which, which I, I, I'll, I'll say self-indulgently here. I happen to love because I love the song come sail away, but, um, I, uh, but that scene ends with the main character saying she's, um, ends and, and it is a complete note of triumph, but what does it end with the main character? She's saying she, I'm going to go dance with a name minor character who's sort of on the periphery of the show in a storyline that doesn't really lead anywhere for the rest of the show. It's just a, it's a completely self-contained moment. It has no further resonances anywhere in the series. And yet, tell me that does not feel like the perfect way to end the pilot episode. Uh, it's terrific. Yeah. And yeah. then it even, or, it even has the seeds. Sorry, pardon my self indulgence, but yeah, it, but it has, yeah. even has the seeds of this relationship between Sam and that that sort of cheerleader girl. Yeah, who eventually yeah. they have a romantic connection, but then 
he did, it, it's such it, it feels so real because he realizes that she's sort of boring, you know, that he, she's not as interesting. She doesn't want to talk about Steve Martin movies, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the same, but she's very human too. Is that she's frustrated that she wanted to date Sam because he was nice, unlike all the other guys, and then they have nothing to talk about. And so it just feels like there's this very true arc that goes all the way back to that moment of the first episode, um, yeah. al- albeit through a different character. A relationship that that beginning, middle, and end has no serious high points of drama. Has no has no big you know screaming fights or you know mix ups or anything like that. None of the sort of traditional sitcom tropes of a teenage relationship. I mean, how about when Jason Siegel tries to impress Lindsay Weir by singing "Lady" by Sticks? Oh, um, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or, or the scene, I don't know why the scenes that I remember are all about music, but the, but the spin, the, the spin, the bottle episode, because it has a fantastic musical cue from Bob Seeger says me, the Michigander, um, the, the actual spin, the, 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 the most important kiss in the, in, in a, in a plot about spin the bottle is actually not for the characters that are forming a relationship it's it's between bill haverchuk and whatever uh, i don't remember the the um oh, the, the actor yeah the other cheerleader yeah yeah the other cheerleader they end up and, and the song playing is is someday lady you'll accompany me by bob seeger and um and uh and that scene and he goes you ever tell anybody about this i'll kill you and bill haverchuk goes okay you know, he like, <laughs> um, yeah. oh, he's he's really great in that too because there's this really moving moment where he's here. Well, you only have 17 seconds left in heaven, and and just the way yeah. he delivers that, just sort of with this defeated attitude that he's as humiliated as she thinks she is. You know, um, yeah. It's you compare, you compare Martin Starr in that movie to Martin Starr in Silicon Valley, and um, and that show to Martin Starr in Silicon Valley. It's um, it's a tremendous actor's career arc. Yeah. Also, you mentioned, you know, Jason Siegel, who's since become a star. There's a lot of people, including James Franco, who Mm. became stars out of that. But his relationship with Lindsay Weir is interesting because it feels very true, too, is that she is this achiever who's putting on a rebel pose. And Mm. and her way of sort of deflecting his romance for her is to get him to is to help him, you know, to to actually get him to learn the drums. Um, Yeah. And he's just it's, it's such a failed attempt, you know. It's it's yeah. it, it, it's doomed. It, it's treated in a way that real life is, you know. That she is, mm-hmm. she's sort of into James Franco, who she probably shouldn't be into, but she's sort of trying to to satiate him by being her the, her straight A student self and getting him to actually learn the drums, and it fails in this very true way. Um, yeah. Uh, and we could probably we could probably do another two hour podcast about <laughs> beautiful moments or just just very true moments from this series. But I think one interesting backstory here. Actually, I have a thesis, and I'm curious to know what you think. Mm-hmm. One is that Dazed and Confused, I think, is a much better movie than than uh, American Graffiti, but it couldn't exist without it. That it it sort of perfected that in a sense, and it feels to me like Freaks and Geeks owes a lot to My Soul Called Life, um, which is a show that I wasn't as into. But it it sort of took some of those ideas and took out the clunkiness and made uh, a just a very very beautiful show about growing up. Yeah. Uh, so uh, American Graffiti are and that's really interesting. American Graffiti and Days to Confused are both second movies. Um, the they were both the second movies made by the writer director of that movie, and um, I think. Um, 
I, I yeah, I, American graffiti, American graffiti weighs itself down with sort of the a little bit with, you know, the fact that the movie the movie is a is about the movie is a how, what's the best way to put this? The, American graffiti is made in 1971, but it's about 1961. Um, and the people, so the people in that movie, in that movie are now adults and, and it was made deliberately for adults. Um, I don't think I, it, it was made, it was made for people to look nostalgically back on 1961 when they were teenagers. I don't think Dazed and Confused is made with like 50 year old, made in, in 1993 with 50 year olds in mind to think about their teenage years. I think it's, I think it's largely coincidental that it's, that it's set in 1976. Um, it's not as consequential to the story as American Graffiti is. Um, Structurally, Dazed and Confused absolutely could not exist without American Graffiti. Um, it's essentially American Graffiti on the last day of school instead of the last day of summer. Um, but I think it um, it has the benefit of it has the I, I think it has the benefit of 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 not being of of being a story without nostalgic aims, the way American Graffiti is, and I think that hampers. The kind of movie American Graffiti is, I, I I still love it, but um, but it is made with a deliberate, wistful eye towards the past that Dazed and Confused is not made with. Um, I didn't I I, I didn't watch I I am not that experienced with my so-called life. Like I've seen some of the episodes and I know some of the classic moments and I know the actors who became famous because of that movie or that television show. I'm sorry, um, but. I also feel like like my so-called life feels very much like the early 90s. Um and Freaks and Geeks had the benefit of being, you know, made in the late 90s but set in 1981. So it didn't it didn't sort of it it didn't sort of look trapped in 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 in, in, a, in a bubble of place and time the way I think my so-called life does. I think my so-called life was, was pioneering in a lot of ways. Um, and I think, and I think it had to do a lot of the he heavy tilling of the soil for, for a show like freaks and geeks to even exist. So maybe it's not fair to say that it was to say that it was clunky or, 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 or dated because, because, um, it was doing a lot of the kind of maiden voyage work. Um, oh, I think it totally broke the ground. You know, I think it was made by the people who made 30-something. So Yeah, yeah, Ed Zwick and Marshall Horskovitz. Yeah, so it was baby boomers trying to make a movie about a Generation X teen, which is fine. But I think mm -hmm. that um, Freaks and Geeks was sort of able to take out some of the clunkier parts. And, and even some of the sort of, let's make this interesting for the for the audience. Let's try and figure out what the where the teens are. Actually, this ties right into um, something I wanted to come back to, which is like, Stranger Things versus Everything Sucks. Um, I don't know if you've seen Everything Sucks on on um, Netflix, but it's a, I haven't. No, it's a teen movie set in in boring Oregon in like the height of grunge. I'm, I'm not sure ninety one or ninety three, but um, and and this is a strange reversal. It, it didn't work for me like Stranger Things did because I think it's trying too hard to be to to, to capture the twelve year old audience. You know, there's yeah. something that feels unreal about the kids in this movie. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas Stranger Things, of course, doesn't even try to pretend that it's trying to, well, of course, I don't know if um, everything sucks is trying to be realistic, but um, somehow um, Stranger Things was able to go straight for their nostalgia jugular in almost ridiculously specific ways. 
uh, and still be effective. You know that that somehow it was able to throw all of the movies you write about in your book into a blender and and pour out something that captured the attention of of young younger people and older people. So, I, what's your take on Stranger Things? I mean, I, I'm 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 only halfway through the second season. I enjoyed the first season very much. It came out at exactly the same time my book came out, so I I really had a um, I had a uh, I, I had a lot of answering to do. Like the third most popular question I got beyond what was your favorite '80s teen movie and can my kids watch blank insert '80s teen movie here was what do you think of Stranger Things? Um, and um, I. Uh, and I really like I, I enjoyed Stranger Things very much. I, I don't think it's particularly relevant that it was set in the 1980s. I mean, it's neat and I really appreciated the references, but there's nothing about the story. It is a kid save the world from monsters story, which was which was which was more more of a trope from then than it is from now. Um, but you could with 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 a minor tweak here and a, and a minor and a major and a minor nip tuck there. Um, you still have, you could still have stranger things set in the present day. I, I, I really, I really do believe that. I don't, I, I don't think it needs to be set in the 1980s. Um, I think it's cool that it's set in the 1980s. Um, so it makes it easier. You know, it's those old eighties things you point in your book, like s- cell phones changing the, the dynamic, you know, kids on bikes, the, uh, the idea of the plausibility of kids being off by themselves pre helicopter age. Um, that helps, but I'm, I might agree that it isn't, it's fun that it's, a, that it's set in the eighties, but the story itself, it doesn't necessarily need the 1980s. Weirdly, the, the, the 1980s nostalgia movie in general coming of age or not is, is really persistent. You know, it just seems a, yeah. lot, a lot more common than a nineties or, or seventies nostalgia movies. And, and we've mm-hmm. had the seventies, you know, there's some persistence, but, um, when we, when we narrow it specifically to coming of age, like you were talking about how. American Graffiti was a 1971 filmed movie about 1961. Well, it seems absurd to write a nostalgic movie about 2008 in in 2018. You know, I'm not sure. Maybe it, it would be set at the dawn of of smartphone social media when Obama is being elected or something. But it just yeah. See, Lady Bird. Oh well, there you go. There, that's a good yeah. point. That's a good point. And and something that I wanted to bring up. It's interesting that that again. Maybe because I was a little dude, a lot of these movies that I responded to had male protagonists. But mm. uh, Lady Bird was really was really good, and and also a movie very specific to place. Like Sacramento is very much yeah. a part of of what that story is. Um, and maybe maybe that is maybe uh, you could comment on better on this situation better than me. But um, maybe Lady Bird is Lady Bird is a sign of how we can continue to not navigate coming of age. From a new movie narrative perspective, one sub question of this is that was an Oscar contender that adults loved. I'm not sure what teenagers actually thought of it. Um, so as we continue to have coming of age movies, a which ones will be considered cla- how can we create classic ones and two, how can we get kids uh, engaged? Sorry for the clunkiness of that question, but let's just think about the present and the future of this genre no i I think and I think. I think Lady Bird is a good example. You know, Lady Bird. It's worth mentioning that Lady Bird, as as Greta Gerwig has said before, is is a is inspired by Real Women Have Curves, which came out 15 years before. Um, and I think Real Women Have Curves and and on through Lady Bird indicate that like the teen movies of the future are going to kind of expand the definition of 
the very conventional definitions of what we thought teen movies are about. You know, I'm sorry, the kind of teenagers who deserve to have movies made about them. Great great point. Um, Great point. Yeah. I mean, nobody is going to nobody is going to argue that Shirsha Ronan isn't a beauty, but they deliberately make her not into one in Lady Bird. And that that can be seen as simply, you know, costuming or overall aesthetic of the film. But it's it's very significant that um that the main character in this movie in Lady Bird is clearly a movie star dressed down to look to look like a normal teenager. Uh, and it's convincing too. It's not it, it doesn't look like, you know, it doesn't look like uh 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 it doesn't look like a model wearing wearing a clunky pair of glasses, for example. Um, Dope, which is one of my favorite teen movies of the last of the last decade or so, is essentially risky business in the 21st century. Except the characters are all black and Latino and gay. Um, we're not too far away, I would assume, if we haven't had one already, from our first um, uh, teen movie where the main character is is trans in some way or other. Um, or where the or where the we've already had I mean Dear Simon was a great teen movie about about a gay male um, that came out this year. Um, I think I think we're we're just beginning to see I mean the the point that John Hughes was making that I tried to emphasize in Brat Pack America and why I thought this was such a special time in movies is John Hughes and and really all of 80s teen movies were saying the stories of teenagers are the stories of us. You know, they, they are they are they have the same drama and high points and low points and and uh, and human need and longing that the stories of adults have. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, now in 2018, I, I hope that the teen movie will start to look a lot more like the um, like the uh, multivaried uh, uh, nation that we live in. Like that, like that's my hope. And, and I feel like it's already starting to happen. That's a great point. I mean, even just the the the, the female protagonistness of Ladybird, um, it's it, that was much less common. You know, just the idea that girls are having their own, leading their own complex stories in in interesting ways. Um, and of course, dope came to mind as you were as you were talking about Ladybird. It's just like, what, from what perspective are we hearing these stories? And and really, you know, we. Many, many, many conversational beats ago, we talked about Long Duk Dong and, and how that would be if he was actually the center of that movie, if he was this outsider discovering, having these crazy adventures. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that the Asian-led teen movie is is a, is a dry spot that, that it feels like is going to be filled soon. Once you acknowledge any kind of diversity, you realize how many interesting twists on the story there can be. It's exciting in a way. It, it, it's funny that I didn't even think about this in a concrete way until... You brought this up through Lady Bird and Dope, but that yes. as now that the barriers are lower for people being able, being able to create their own content, that that really is the answer of what the future is. And and I'm sure a lot of white dudes will be doing, doing the same thing, but it won't um, specifically be through the filter of a studio. It'll be anybody who decides they have an interesting story to tell. Yeah, I, I really think that like my hope is with 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 spending all of this time writing a book about 80s teen movies and and and, you know, the kind of conversations you and I have had, like like the reason these can go on for hours and hours is because there's so there's so much there. I mean, it really it the genre, the genre and the movies it contains have now become like a letter of the alphabet. And, and like like imagine how many, you know, imagine how many words use use the letter B or something. And so the the 80s teen movie um, is now part of the language of cinema and the language of culture. And as such, um, 
it can be interpreted all of these different ways, the same way a musician can interpret an A-sharp chord or something. Um, so we get a movie like Spider-Man Homecoming, which is the superhero version of a John Hughes movie. We get Dope, which is the Inglewood, California, black and Latino version of Risky Business. Um, uh, we get uh, Lady Bird, you know, Lady Bird, which is a which is a millennial, ver which is a, you know, turn of the millennium version of Real Women Have Curves set in Northern California instead of Southern California. Um, and I think, you know, and I think we can do we can just keep twisting and turning that cherry stem and who knows what we'll get. But um, to me, that's just an indicator of how of how strong and rich the genre of teen movie is in the first place is 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 it is it never is we never stop imagining this has been deviate with rolf potts more about everything that was just mentioned including links to kevin smokler's book brat pack america can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate and as always you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com this episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Inside and out and out.